your researchers also have to be representative of the populations of whom we're going to be studying. And so that's when, you know, and Gordon, you were asking earlier about how do you ensure that there's equity of research as well? We've put a stake in the ground saying that that is something that is embedded throughout our strategic plan. Strategic plan is not a bookmark for me. I hate strategic plans that just go on a shelf. Ours is all about, we're making a promise that we're doing these things. So if you're going to have equitable outcomes, you've got to have equitable accessibility that you're granting. You have to have equitable accessibility to the opportunities to be researchers. And we have to do that all in the context of nothing but excellence. We find the best of what we can do. But I have yet to have anybody tell me that doing that means I can't do the other. It's got to be. Hello everyone, my name is uh, Michael Strong. I am the president of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and you're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. And now we're on to one of my favorite segments of the podcast, Insight Blitz. This is going to be a rapid fire segment, like I mentioned, called Insight Blitz, where I will be asking you, Dr. Strong, some questions or read some statements, and you will provide a brief response. Okay. Are you ready? Yep, and I'll keep them brief. I'll do that. Okay, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Some of them might be hard to keep brief, but yeah. All right, let's go. If you weren't a clinician and researcher, what would you be doing for your career instead? Well, um, it certainly wouldn't be a golf pro um, because that's, there's evidence that that wouldn't work. I would love to be an architect. My son is an architect. Um, um, but beyond that, um, one who also builds, because I, I, as I say, I love carpentry and such. So I love seeing things at the end of the day that I've created and are there. So probably I'd, be a, I'd, be a, I'd, have, a, I'd have a construction firm of some sort. Name one of the most influential books you've read. Oh, isn't that interesting? Um, two books by the same author, Peggy Noonan on Ronald Reagan. Oh, so you need to understand that. I did go down and spend those three years at the NIH for it. And it was during the time period when Reagan was finishing off his second term. The next elections were coming along for it. And I will say that most of us in the academic sphere really thought Reagan was just an actor and probably not the sharpest tool in the box. And, you know, I, I could go through a lot of stuff. And that's what I left with until I read Peggy Noonan's books. And Peggy Noonan was through... Just even her autobiography is interesting. But as a reporter and the work that she did, and then ultimately becoming part of the White House and part of all of that. And she describes not just the genesis of Ronald Reagan as a politician, but as his moral fiber uh, and the decisions that he made. And the way he would take things on, because in principle they were correct, even if they were against those who had brought him into power as president. And I use him as an example when I'm teaching about leadership. And one of them is, is that you, you guys are too young. You won't remember. There was a time when the FAA down in the States were all threatened to quit. And Ronald Reagan was over in Russia working on a negotiation of a strategic arms limitation treaty. And they were treating him like we treated him cognitively. And he had to come back. And, and basically what he had said because of the FAA thing, 
that he left towards the end of the week. He had said in advance that if this is not resolved in such and such an hour, I will fire all of the FAA and I will rebuild it from the military and we will have our planes back in the air within 72 hours. So he left, fired them all, returned on Sunday night. The FAA had been rebuilt. And within that week, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty uh, was starting to be a thing that was real because people recognized that he had said he was going to do something. These were the principles. And then he followed through. So I would say that was, that's been one of the most influential books I've read because there were lessons in there about being a leader. One might have to check it out. Yeah, for sure. She's a lovely writer. She re- it's a terrific book set of books to read. What is your favorite thing to do in your spare time? Wow. Well, my wife and I love gardening. We, we really do. So it's a beautiful time of year for that. So I love to garden. I love to read. Generally, if somebody doesn't die in the first three pages, my attention span dissipates. Although I do love reading political history and understanding the decision-making process. It's not a main driver. It's so... It's, I love doing that. I love golfing. I love sports. I love, we, I've, we have three children who are all empty nesters. They're fantastic, fantastic adults now. So for me, there's lots of things I love doing. And so you kind of touched on leadership. Could you tell us some of the important traits of being a leader, especially in health research or research field? Yeah, I think the top of the list is just be honest. That's number one for me with that. Both honest with yourself as well as honest with the people you're working with. Honesty with yourself is to recognize what your limits are. And, you know, none of us are superhuman. And none of us have the, the wherewithal to kind of weather every crisis on their own. But also, all people are wanting is you to be honest with them. If you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know the answer. If you're going to try and bring something forward or make a decision that people are not going to like, explain to them why. Consult. Ask questions. Eventually, you have to make a decision. This isn't about waffling. But I think you have to be honest with individuals. And the second piece um, is that I really try not to treat people as I would not want myself to be treated. I think that was kind of a double negative, but you know what I mean. It's hard, right? It's hard sometimes with that because you sometimes you have to make a snap statement or a snap decision. And certainly in my mind, you know, you kind of got to think about, is that the way I would want to have been spoken to at that moment in time? And, and that moment in time never comes back. To me, those are such critical pieces. You've been a distinguished researcher your whole career, great career. You were the dean and currently you're the president. And a lot of people, especially me, wonder, how do people like you stay motivated throughout all this? You know, by talking to people like you. (laughs) That sounds like, yeah, right, here we go. He is a politician now. (laughs) You know, I have, I've loved teaching all my career. If I look back on the things that I miss now, and I was missing to some degree as a dean, but I loved teaching at the bedside. I love working with people who are incredibly smarter than I am. And I've got uh, 14 people in my lab right now. I think they're starting to assume my function is to grab a coffee and go in my office and get out of their way when I come in on a Friday. But it's they're, they're just the things that people are moving forward with and the chance to say, yes, but let's put them in a context of what we're trying to achieve. Or... And it's hard to, I was always taught, and and this was something Ralph said to me, was that you need to understand you're never going to have your own brilliant idea, right? Go back and look in the literature, right? Somebody has thought about it. And I will say, one of the biggest flaws I see right now is people don't go back and look at that, right? And think about even if the methodologies were archaic, which they are, I get it, but the concepts that were being developed. So to teach that 
We talk about RNA biology and RNA dysgenesis in ALS right now is fundamental, and people credit our lab with coming forward with a lot of producing that evidence that is in play for that. And you can go back 30 years before that, and people were using staining techniques on spinal motor neurons in ALS and saying, looks like there's not as much RNA sitting in here. Really? Like, we didn't even have probes back then uh, to look at it. And they're using a stain and saying, yeah, you know what? And here I am, 30-some-odd, 40 years later, and I go, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? So I, I love the teaching part of it. That's what keeps me motivated going. Wonderful. And I, I think that's great. And I want to take a side here for a second within our Insight Blitz, which I never do. But I want to also say, you mentioned that people like us keep you motivated, your teaching and your passion keep you very motivated. And I want to also acknowledge the idea that you have been supporting the next generation of public health students and researchers, especially myself. I actually was awarded one of the travel grants and awards that you and your wife, Wendy, put out there. And it allowed me to experience and do some research in Thailand and travel to Thailand. So I want to take that opportunity to say thank you to you and Wendy. Oh, that's terrific. Thank you for that. It's nice to meet somebody who's, it was, obviously I have a passion for that program and the ability to learn. And as you got from this, my discussion earlier, the world's your oyster, right? And, and that to me, when people ask, what is one of the best parts of your career? There are places I've been to, there are people I've met, there's ideas I've heard, discussions I've been part of that I would never, ever, ever have imagined I could have been as a teenager. And so anything that we can do to help open those doors for others, we'll try and do. And so continuing on with the Inside Blitz, I understand you have a special criteria named after you related to one of your research interests. What is the strong criteria? Um, it's, it's the index by which you should never be a golfer. Does that work? <laughs> so the strong criteria, this is about one of the major non-motor manifestations of ALS, which is alterations in cognition. And so the thing about Lou Gehrig's disease is that it has been since its inception and described back in you know 1890, earlier than that, actually, if you go further into the literature, it is a pure motor neuron disorder. It is degeneration of that. And it was always held that to have cognitive changes would be extremely unusual. And in fact, it was Arthur Hudson who wrote one of the seminal papers back in the early 1980s on this that said that about 15% of ALS patients would also have Parkinson's or might have dementia in association with it. Jeez, if he wasn't right. But in fact, when you really look at it, it is frontotemporal dysfunction. And we could at some point have a really fascinating discussion around how the connexome starts to work in this. But at the end of the day, somewhere between 50 and 60% of patients with Lou Gehrig's disease will have non-motor manifestations. And it could be behavioral, it could be cognitive, it could be disexecutive, it could be a true frontal temporal dysfunction uh, or dementia with that. And so the strong criteria are a set of internationally agreed upon criteria by which to diagnose that. And they arose from a set of conferences that we sponsored here through the ALS Society of Canada and the Windsor ALS Society, who provided funding for us to bring some of the world's best minds uh, on this here to London every two years for a decade. It was just a wonderful, it was 100 people, we kept it very small, and we had an immense amount of time just for roundtable discussions and such. And twice, we did the original criteria and then we revised them again uh, a, few, a few years later for it. And so those were uh, the strong criteria, that's what they are. You're no stranger to the world of podcasting. Tell us about your podcast, On the Mic with Mike, and tell us about some of the topics you cover. So this is, it's, I really love doing it. So the purpose behind doing it and setting up 
was, and this was before I had come into the CIHR, I was starting to think about things that I wanted to do a little bit differently. And I wanted to demystify us as scientists. You know, like, why do people do this? Why are people so passionate um, about science? You get any of us going on about this, and we could go for hours on end. And I was actually at Colm Fiore's house. He and his wife, Donna, are Stratford, you know, amazing, amazing individuals. And I was, we were talking about this, and I said, my problem is, I don't know what to call it. Like, I don't want to call it. And Colm, like that went, on the mic with Mike. <laughs> So that's so I, I always do that because I need to give credit where credit is due, right? So it's Colin Fiore who says that. And, and it was, there was not a nanosecond. And that's the name we've stayed with. And so the idea behind it is that when I'm traveling to these various universities to give talks, we'll actually you know, ask them, to, like, we want to talk to one of your researchers. Um, and, um, and it's really about everything from how did, you, how did you get your career into this? Like, how did you start? Right? What do you really love about this? Um, if you could, and one of the questions I love to ask, so you don't get to ask, right, is that if you could go back in time and talk to anybody, who would it be and what would you ask them? And I've had some really interesting answers, everything from heartbreaking ones of family members who've been lost to like Madame Curie to go back and have conversations. They've been wonderful. Students are using them. I've had letters from high school students asking for them. We're trying to work on the modeling, like as you, you two would know. These are you know, people's attention spans. They have to work within that. So anyways, we're hoping now that the pandemic is done, that we're going to start to bring them back out again because I can start to do interviews again. Wonderful. And that brings the end of our Insight Blitz segment. Back to you, Gordon. Yes, and not to get more serious and somber, but we would be remiss if we didn't uh, pick your brain into, let's, let's go back two years now back to March 2020, when the pandemic was declared. I want to know what your thoughts were about the situation from a health research perspective and how you went about setting those new priorities for research. There'll be books written on this someday by people, right? It was quite an interesting period of time. So in January, a small group of us were actually doing a visit out to Japan and then Australia, New Zealand. And because part of what we do is look at how research is best done in other countries, right? There are similar type agencies as us, so we're all learning from each other. And while we were there, we were contemplating that we would also swing up uh, to China because I'd done a lot of work in China before uh, entering into the CIHR uh, and such. But we knew at that point, and this was the first and second week, we were already starting to hear that something was breaking. And within that time window, we made the decision that we couldn't go to China because we now knew that there was this infectious agent. Had no idea how highly infectious, but there was concerns. And the early reports pre-Christmas because of the nature of the work we do with that. So by the time we got to February, some of the, the particularly Chiru Kashik, who is a, a professor and researcher out of McMaster, who is our lead on our infectious immunology, who I also would suggest you might want to talk to at some point, and is brilliant and was involved with the WHO, and are also involved with some of the global, something called GLOPADAR, which looks at emergence of infectious diseases. So while I was still on the trip, I was being asked, could we free up funding to assist in supporting the WHO to convene a conference in the first two weeks of February to begin to look at what research priorities would ultimately, were the WHO roadmap came from that, right? And we began, even before February, to start to say, okay, these are the programs that we think we're going to need uh, to have in place. We still didn't know that it was coming to Canada. 
we everybody assumed yes this thing is going to start to move we had no idea the mutagenesis of this or any of the subsequent pieces for it and so as Cheru and Stephen Hoffman, another one of our scientific directors, Michelle Peel, who's one of our senior people, were headed to the United Nations, or sorry, to the WHO for this meeting. We had already completely written the research program that would be introduced. And the only thing that we were waiting to do was to see to what degree did it harmonize with the WHO uh, need for it. And we modified it in real time. We were on the phone regularly, going back and forth, and the programs were in place. And so when they returned... We already had the entirety of Canada's first research program written and ready to go in advance of any other country in the world to have a broadly based one. So Welcome came forward and Gates came forward, but very focused on immunology, very specific. We said, no, we know this is going to be much bigger. We need a more broadly based. And once that came forward, then started to work really closely with my counterparts in the other agencies. So over at CERC and NSERC with CRCC, working with the chief science officer, Mona Niemer, over to NRC, to IRDC, which is our international research, to Genome Canada, and then working really closely with our minister, with Patty Haidu at the time, and saying, I need to put together a funding initiative on that. Long story short, by the time I was done, we'd managed to generate over $50 million to do our first research call. And I can still remember to this day, I was, it was one of my Thursday nights, and I was flying back to, from Ottawa to London, and I had back-to-back-to-back calls in the lobby as the plane was being called, um, as I was aligning these funds to go forward. And we announced that program, and within five weeks from the point of announcing the program, conceptualization announcement, we had funds in the hands of Canadian investigators to get going. The next piece of that was in, and we announced it. So this, the announcement of who was receiving the funding, I still remember to this day, because it occurred in the very early part of March, right? On a Friday in Montreal, and there were four ministers there. I was at the table with the ministers answering questions as to what this program was about. You know, interesting, uh, Minister Duclos, who's now my minister, was finance at the time. And there were others, Minister Jolie and such. And my minister, and what I'd said to Minister Haidu was that, you know, Patty, I have got to leave this conference like on time because I must catch a plane um, back to London and I must be there tonight because tomorrow morning, if I miss the flight I'm on, I will miss the wedding of my son in Mexico, right? And there's no doghouse big enough to take on a plane, right, for it all. Went to the wedding, came back on the following Saturday, which was the day the border shut down. We just got in. That evening had messages as to what we need to do as our next step. Clearly, I'd been following through all of this, right? And by Sunday afternoon, um, we were meeting as, as deputy heads, deputy ministers on the development of the suite of programs of the governmental response to all of this. And it was an absolute change on a dime by the way we looked at funding flowing forward. Um, because at that point, we now knew that this was starting to mutate quite rapidly. We knew that it was spreading around the world. We knew that it was just a matter of time before we saw a real break in Canada starting to come. Theresa Tam was obviously heavily involved right from the very beginning of all of this. But that research focus of it, that period of time, which was really two months between the beginning of January traveling to Japan to getting back from my son's wedding is a period of time I will never, ever, ever forget in my life because we started to move rapidly. And after that, we were, I mean, 24-7 doesn't say it. There was just no coming up for air for, honestly, for almost a year and a half, just constant development. And an, an incredible team.
That's incredible. And I'd be interested in knowing about, you, you mentioned a pot of, I think, $50 million for the program. What were some of those priority areas of focus within that program as it relates to the, the pandemic response or preparedness? Yeah. So in the early, early days, right, particularly on our research side of it, because there was other things that were happening on deciding on the vaccine. And that's a story that will be written someday as well, too, because I think it's, it's everybody looks back now and says, gee, how many vaccines did you really need? The answer at those days was as many as you could possibly get your hands on. And because Canada is not a net synthesizer of vaccines and doesn't have the fill and finish capacity. So my colleagues at that time, Simon Kennedy, deputy minister over at ICED, did a brilliant job working with Health Canada as well to get all of these together. But that's a story in and of itself. Our work, we were funding things of everything from was there, were we going to start to see differences in outcomes on socioeconomic populations? Where we and, and remember, in the early days of all of this, we were already seeing that you know, individuals of color within Montreal were having different outcomes right, than individuals not of color in non-urban settings or urban inner city settings. Right? So we were working with our partners over at Shirk and those kinds of programs. We were funding technologies for rapid evaluation. Remember, at that time, we didn't even have a test for it. And now you can put a stick in your nose and you can tell you got the antigen in place. Amazing technology moving forward, plus everything from animal modeling. How did you? How do you know, right? What the actual? So we did when we talked about those four pillars. We funded the entire breadth of it, which is why it was such a unique program because no other country in the world did that. That that's incredible, and I, I remember specifically moving along with this discussion is. In a previous podcast that you did in late 2020, you actually mentioned that one of the most significant things we have to deal with as a result of the challenges from this pandemic is the destruction of the ecosystem of health research and the inequities that became very apparent because of it. What did you mean by that statement and how has that ecosystem of health held up throughout these last couple of years? Yeah, so what we were talking about, when I look across you know, the Canadian landscape for research, it is a, it's an ecosystem. Right. Yes, we are the federal funders. But if you look at where actually does a lot of the funding come from that supports the health research ecosystem in this country, top of that pile are the universities and the academic systems. Right. When you look south of the border, you hear about huge grants. You hear 40, you know, 40 billion dollars going forward now, maybe with a cancer moonshot up to 80 or whatever. That. Right. But remember, you know, somewhere around 60 to 70%, depending on where, is overhead that goes into the university systems. And we don't do that in Canada. Those are the responsibilities of the universities through the provincial. So people forget that in the absence of those facilities, you don't have health researchers. So it's a big piece. And think about all the things that change so rapidly in the university sector for that. And then think about also, you know, just, just around $800 million a year pre-pandemic of research funding in this country came from charitable donations and philanthropic. So for me, you know, my career has been supported hugely by the ALS Society of Canada, by muscular dystrophy, by a host of other ones. Now, when the economy starts to crash and philanthropic money start to dry up, there are agencies in this country that will not come back. They're gone, right? So where do those researchers go? People often assume, and, and I often ask this question, I won't do it of you two guys, but you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to... How many CIHR grants do you think I've had in my life? People say, man, you've got this great career, over 200 publications, textbooks, all the rest of it. You must have been funded every single day of your life by CIHR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe four plus a bridge. Right. 
um, through that. It's been funded through other peer review mechanisms. And so I'm a product of that, right? And I'm a product of the deep support from CIHR at other really critical points in my career. And I can't imagine when I look back at my career to say, and what if they weren't there? So that's what I mean by the destruction of the ecosystem. And how do we help to rebuild that? We're doing lots of things to help from a CHR point of view in terms of you know, how we work with groups, how we think about moving funding out broader. The pandemic has provided a, a real infusion of funds into the system to deal with it. But that's when I talk about it, it keeps me awake at night. That is one of my big worries. And related to that is with this research that you're funding, you do the research you publish your findings in high-impact journals or any level of impact journal, depending on the research, and which is an amazing accomplishment in and of itself. As far as health research and best practices, does the knowledge sharing stop there? Because I know, for example, CIHR talks about this idea of knowledge users, which is defined as an individual who is likely to be able to use the research results to make informed decisions and health policies, programs, and practices. How does this idea of the knowledge user fit in the broad approaches that you have at CIHR and is related to kind of knowledge translation? Yeah, so that goes back to the learning health systems. And it also goes back to the question you asked earlier, which I really didn't address in a well, which is about equity, right? But if you look at our strategic plan, it's all about equitable health outcomes for Canadians powered by excellence in research, which is more than a slogan uh, and a phraseology. Equitable health outcomes in this country is dependent on everything from socioeconomic to geographic to microbiological to you just name it. The list is huge, right? And it doesn't mean that an equitable outcome uh, in an inner city is the same as an equitable outcome in the, I don't know, going to the Arctic, which I've had the pleasure of being able to visit and see how health is has dealt with there. So you have to really start to think about what are the populations of individuals to whom you're trying to ensure these equitable outcomes. So to, to be able to do that, your learning health system cannot be rigorous. It cannot be a system that says, an equitable outcome in downtown London is the same as an equitable outcome in downtown Toronto as it is in inner city uh, Vancouver or in the midst of an opioid crisis or all of those bits and pieces have to be looked at and brought together. It also means then that as you're thinking about your researchers, that your researchers also have to be representative of the populations of whom we're going to be studying. And Gordon, you were asking earlier in our pre about how do you ensure that there's equity of research as well? We've put a stake in the ground saying that that is something that is embedded throughout our strategic plan. Strategic plan is not a bookmark for me. I hate strategic plans that just go on a shelf. Ours is all about, we're making a promise that we're doing these things. So if you're gonna have equitable outcomes, you've gotta have equitable accessibility to granting. You have to have equitable accessibility to the opportunities to be researchers. And we have to do that all in the context of nothing but excellence. We find the best of what we can do. But I have yet to have anybody tell me that doing that means I can't do the other. It's got to be. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And I like that piece too as well about we can't forget the importance of that knowledge mobilization. So we're funding the best in research, but just like the strategic plan that we don't want sitting on the shelf, we also don't want research findings to be sitting on the shelves either. And it's sort of an active process of knowledge mobilization to make sure it is available in a way that can be understood by the people that can use it. In 
one of the reports, there's mention about integrative KT, so knowledge translation, as well as end of grant knowledge translation as it relates to research. Can you talk about that for a little bit? So the integrated uh, knowledge translation is, mm -hmm. is really what is the evidence mm -hmm. that you've been able to influence whatever it was that you set out to do in the first place. And it's interesting because, you know, at one of the talks that I gave earlier in this week, I also said to individuals, not everything that we do has to be linked to a knowledge mobilization or a knowledge synthesis component of it that can be seen immediately um, in policy. There are foundational things, like the next Nobel Prize, if not in this year, soon, will be on RNA biology uh, used for the vaccine. That research didn't get funded stateside. It was turned down. And the individual who started that work was not promoted and actually marginalized for doing that conceptually. Because why would you ever want to do that, right? Remember, RNA stuff 30 years ago was kind of wow. It still is for me kind of wow. It's by my research, but before that. So you have to have really, really good science and just let's have at it. People often think when I'm talking about that, that I'm talking about bench-based research all the time. No, there are some really good pragmatic research trial designs that need to be tested so that we understand how they work. Right? And can they get you to more quick, efficient, true answers? So people often mistake when I'm saying let good science go for good science sake, that I'm talking about people who look like me at a bench. No, 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 no. It's across the board. But that doesn't mean that we cannot as a whole right, be driving ourselves towards saying, but of a $1.3 billion a year flowing out, how do I know that we're actually changing those out. True integrative knowledge mobilization. What's the evidence behind that? And that's really the new CIHR. That's the direction we're really taking uh, on all of that. I will t I'll tell you as well too that, you know, one of the really amazing things that, you know, I've been privileged to have, not because they pay my salary, doesn't matter at the end of the day from that, is that I have worked for amazing ministers of health, right? And an amazing minister for mental health right now too who absolutely demand to understand what that means. And it's not a superfluous, yeah, I'm the minister at the moment. I think you should tell me about how your health... No, it's like, what's the evidence that what you're going to do is going to help me get through this crisis at this point in time? And how do we ensure that that's in place? That's, to me, the end user on a policy side saying, I need you to do this and to have it in place. And I can't wait four or five years for it. I need it quickly. It's, I think it's going to change the way the courses that you guys had when you came through. And it's, it's going to add, when you think about your practicums, boy, if you don't have one practicum where you're working in the government, or if there's not a case study around this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I'll be talking to Amardeep. <laughs> <laughs> not that I have any influence uh, at all, but... <laughs> yeah, we'll talk to him too. Yeah. We'll, be there, we'll be there right with you. All right. So the last thing we wanted to end with here is for our listeners, we have early career professionals, students, you name it, leaders in research, executives in public health. What is some of your main messages that you want them to take away having heard our talk for this episode? Um, wow. Um, maybe a few, right? So first off, your career is going to be what it's going to be. And when you're in the middle of it, it can be hard to see where it's going to go. Um, and it can be really hard when you're hit with adversity. It sounds like everything flowed beautifully, right? Throughout the career, just, yeah, no, 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 not always, right? Um, there was a time when 
we had cutbacks in the number of residency positions in this in the, in the province. And uh, there was a small group of us that were internal medicine residents when we came on board. Three of us, all three of us who became academics and leaders in our areas, all got cut from our programs in the middle of training, middle of training. And we were all thinking, you know, we'd all had you know, terrific evaluations. Everything was fine. I still remember coming home to my wife and we were devastated. I picked up the phone and called colleagues in Queens and I was able to get a position to go back to Queens if it hadn't been. There were several times, it was probably some of the darkest periods to sit back and say, my career has just come to a complete stop. I'm going to go off and do something else in whatever direction. Might be. It goes back to one of the other principles. You know how that decision was made? They couldn't make it. So they put all of our names in a hat and they drew out three who wouldn't get ongoing positions. Now, you know, if you had just said that, that just on the basis of probability alone, we just did a selection process, and sorry, but you didn't win the lottery. You know what? Great. But to say you're not getting renewed, right? So I go back to that honesty, right? You can deal with anything if people are honest with you. And so that to me is one. And I, I could go and, and give you a litany of other times in my life when I've really wondered what's happened to my career, when I've literally sat up at nighttime and just gone, I think I've made a mistake, or this isn't going to happen, or a grant has been rejected that you've written. Nobody sends in a, a bad grant. Nobody says, oh, this is the worst thing I've ever written. I'm so pleased I got a chance to send it in, right? And it comes back as being, this, is, this looks like the worst thing you've ever written. Why did you even send it in, right? So those are devastating. They're absolutely devastating for you. But hang in there. Continue to work on it. If you really love this, if you're really passionate about it, it's, a, it's an amazing life to have done this. And, you know, I, the final thing I'll say on that, and it happened to me just last week. A young individual came up to me and said, what do I need to do to have your career? And my response was, if you have my career, you've made a terrible mistake. Right? Yeah. And that's what she said, too. But it's not what I meant. If you have my career, then you didn't have yours. Right. Mm, okay. Okay. Right? I see what you're saying. There. Yeah. Let okay. it let it unfold. Things happen for reasons. You have mentors you don't know about. You have people who are going to do little things in your life that 20 years later you'll go, wow, if, if Jeff hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been there. Right. These types of things. So for me, I, I would just say it's it is a tough life. It's an amazing life. Um, it's an amazing career. It's not always going to go as you want it to be. And if you try and plan it too much, I don't think it works. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring words to our audience, Dr. Shong. And thank you for coming on to the Public Health Insight Podcast. We loved having you. Oh, listen, not as much as I'm going to love having you two guys come to my garden and work this afternoon. <laughs> oh, hey, I'm ready. <laughs> We're ready. We're ready. It's my time of year. I just don't do anything in the winter. But when we get into May to October, that's when you see All me good. outside. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.